This is Bang Goes the Universe, a walking, talking, four-dimensional tour of the history, the people, and the science behind one of the greatest discoveries of all time, the Big Bang. I'm your host, Ron Voller, writer, producer, astro-enthusiast, science communicator, and author of Hubble, Hummison, and the Big Bang, the race to uncover the expanding universe. This podcast is an attempt to demystify the science behind Big Bang cosmology by working through the developments in modern thought that slowly led us to our current state of play. I'll hold interviews and labs to help you visualize various concepts along the way, and we'll visit some of the people and places who are or were at the forefront of discovery in the field. But first, let's review the timeline, from the opening bell to the airing of this podcast. I'm grateful to you for joining me. There's a lot to cover, so let's get started. Once upon the very threshold of time, about 14 billion years ago, all of the stuff that makes up what we now refer to as the known universe was bundled up in a volume hundreds of billions of times smaller than the head of a pin. In fact, it was so hot that matter wasn't even yet matter, and the forces of nature that we know and love today had yet to materialize. Just how this sub-pinpoint bubble of energy emerged is a mystery. Was it one of many such bubbles boiling to the surface of a great cosmic witch's cauldron or universal spring? Or the momentary zero point of a once vast universe that had ballooned outward and then collapsed in on itself after hundreds of billions of years? Or is there some other explanation? No one knows for sure. Anyone who says they know is selling something. Our best working theories, general relativity and quantum mechanics, don't agree with each other, much less come to a consensus on the origin of space and time. So prescient were these two competing theories that it's taken a century to develop the technology to test some of the outcomes they predict. In other words, where the beginning is concerned, and certainly what came before it, science has no answers. What is apparent is that at that subneedle point in time, this super hot bundle burst and our universe was born. Or born again, if you prefer. By the time the universe was just one ten million trillion trillion trillionths of a second old and roughly a hundred billion trillion trillionths of a meter wide, an imperceptibly small interval in size referred to in astrophysics as the Planck era, gravity managed to wriggle free of the other forces of nature. All of gravity's mysteries have yet to be uncovered. Newtonian theory suggested that objects fall compelled by Earth's gravity. This early iteration still works fine for predicting certain phenomena like the trajectory of an object through the air, for instance, but it fails to describe other phenomena like the bending of light around a star. That was a subject of Einstein's revision of Newtonian gravity in the early 20th century, which says that the Earth and other objects move freely in curved space-time, compelled by their mass and energy. But here in the first millisecond of time, Einstein's gravity gets a little bit wobbly, unsure how to grapple with Planck's quantum world. Max Planck was an early champion of Einstein, and later both a colleague and friend. One can only imagine the conversations the two of them had over a cognac nearby a crisply burning fire. In any event, 
The work of these two grand masters of modern physics will require a third iteration that can better describe the universe in this very early stage of its history. But let's move on with our story. Just a nanosecond after gravity attained its freedom, as the universe continued to expand, the strong nuclear force separated from the remaining energy bundle, leaving only the electroweak force, which a short time later split into the weak nuclear force and the electromagnetic force. In what took no more than a trillionth of a second, the four forces of nature were set free. The weak nuclear force governs radioactive decay and initiates the nuclear fusion that powers stars like the sun. The strong nuclear force controls atomic nuclei and is the underlying force behind the formation and stability of matter. The electromagnetic force binds molecules together and gravity binds planets and stars and other really massive stuff. Without this fab foursome, there would be no sun, no earth, and no way to keep your feet on the ground. At this very early stage, the universe was like a tiny, ultra-brilliant subatomic flashbulb, as the searing heat caused photons, which belonged to the Boson subatomic family, to transform into matter-antimatter particle pairs that immediately obliterated themselves and reformed as photons. At the same time, other bosons were playing matchmaker for another family of subatomic particles known as fermions, after Enrico Fermi. Fermi was an Italian-American physicist who created the first nuclear reactor in Chicago in 1942. Fermions have group names like quark and lepton, and together with bosons, form the most basic known particles in the universe, divisible by nothing. Bosons are named after the Indian theoretical physicist Satyendra Nath Bose, who introduced these superconducting nanoparticles to quantum mechanics in the 1920s. Common bosons, gluons and photons and such, are thought to be energy or force carriers. While one very important boson, the Higgs boson, is responsible for the formation of matter. Fermions, on the other hand, are the simplest components of matter. A quark is the poster child for codependency. They are never without a partner, and the harder you try to separate them, the harder they fight to stick together. This makes them really good candidates for forming composite particles. Need a recipe for making protons? Just take two up quarks and a down quark, add in a few gluons, and stir. Now, during this quark-lepton phase of the early universe, about a millionth of a second after the beginning... These little guys were pairing up with their antimatter counterparts and obliterating themselves like their bosonic cousins in a colossal interchange of energy. But a mere billion and one to a billion asymmetry had developed sometime within this megaburst that caused material subparticles to ever so slightly outnumber antimatter particles. By now, our nascent universe had grown to a size greater than our solar system and cooled to below a trillion degrees Kelvin. No need to break out the winter coats just yet. Kelvin, by the way, is the scale by which scientists measure temperature. It was formulated by an Irish mathematical physicist and engineer named William Thompson, a.k.a. First Baron Kelvin, a.k.a. Lord Kelvin, who decided, quite rightly, that temperature i.e. the rate of heat exchange given off by particles in motion, should begin at absolute zero, 
the point at which that inertial heat exchange stops. When he worked out absolute zero in degrees Celsius, he came up with minus 273, which doesn't make any sense. But we'll get to thermodynamics later in the project. For now, it doesn't really matter, since at a trillion degrees, a few hundred degrees, more or less, is little more than a boiling drop of water in the cosmic stove. Despite still being very hot, the universe was no longer hot or dense enough to fuse quarks. So being the needy little birds they are, quarks began to form up into larger particles, called hadrons. You'll know two of these by name, the proton and the neutron. These two particles make up most of the mass of ordinary matter in the universe. At first, the hadrons went through the same matter-antimatter annihilations their subatomic cousins had gone through. But as the universe continued to expand and cool, the spontaneous production of quarks and other subparticles began to drop. The result was that for every billion annihilations, a single hadron was left over. And it was these hadron orphans that went on to form the material universe. Galaxies, stars, planets, the birds, the bees, the flowers, and the trees. Without that minuscule hadron-making imbalance, the universe would have simply remained a massless photon flashbulb. What is truly remarkable is that these incredible cosmic events unfolded in just the first second after the beginning. For the next two minutes, the same pattern that existed for bosons, fermions, and hadrons continued. One electron survived for every billion matter-antimatter annihilations. Meanwhile, protons and neutrons got together to form atomic nuclei. Finally, as the universe reached a diameter of 8 or 10 light-years, say, roughly the distance between the Sun and Alpha Centauri, hydrogen atoms formed, the most ubiquitous element in the universe. Helium, too, running a distant second to its volatile cousin in volume, and lithium, along with a couple of heavier forms of hydrogen. The atomic universe was born. Things went on like that for another 380,000 years. The universe continued to expand and cool while electrons roamed free among the photons. During this period, the first molecule, helium hydride, or HEH+, was formed, foreshadowing a cataclysmic future event that would jumpstart the material universe. That magical moment happened when the temperature finally fell below 3,000 degrees Kelvin. At that temperature, about half the temperature of the surface of the sun, all the free electrons in the universe combined with nuclei, and the formation of all atoms and particles in the universe was complete. This awesome burst of atomic energy was so colossal, it left a permanent impression on the cosmos that is still detectable in the microwave range of the energy spectrum. It offers a complete map of the location of all matter in the universe at that moment in space-time. This universal buzz is known today as the Cosmic Microwave Background, or CMB. Here the universe entered into what astrophysicists refer to as the Dark Ages, a period of continued expansion that saw neutral hydrogen spread across the cosmos. At some point around 100 million years after the beginning, gravitational forces pooled vast pockets of hydrogen together to form the first proto-galaxies. This excited the pooling neutral hydrogen, which began to combine once again, producing heat. This led to the first protostars. 
stars that aren't massive enough to generate their own heat, but instead get their energy from the gas pooling around them. It wasn't long, though, before these stars did acquire sufficient mass. Lots of it. More than a hundred times that of the stars we see in the sky today. These so-called Population 3 stars shed the first visible light on the nascent universe after the CMB. Population 3 stars are only theoretical. They have not yet been detected and may never be. This is because they were so massive, they lived only about a million years before the gravitational forces at play within them forced them into collapse in the first supernova events that began pouring the first heavier elements into the ever-expanding cosmic ocean, thus beginning the sequence of material expansion that eventually led to you sitting and listening to this podcast. So here we had the growing material universe at less than 10% of its current size, roiling like a cosmic billiard table after a break. Supernovas were collapsing into supermassive black holes that consolidated huge masses of gas around them, swirling and exciting the gas to form new stars, some of which grew quickly and collapsed into supernovas, repeating the cycle. Over and over, this activity continued as the first galaxies of stars were formed. These galaxies often smashed into each other, igniting ever more massive starburst events, combining and recombining to form new galactic structures that careened into the farthest reaches of space. A billion years later, tens of billions of galaxies had formed, each with hundreds of billions of stars many of which had masses ten times that of the sun. The universe began to look much the way we see it today, and the way it will likely remain for many billions of years into the future. After nine billion years, the ever-expanding universe held a couple hundred billion galaxies. Truly, there are more than we can count. More even than we can see, in fact. Many formed clusters and groups of galaxies, their masses and gravity drawing them together, smashing into each other and spreading their combined energy and elements around. In one of these galactic clusters, known today as the Virgo Supercluster, around 4.8 billion years ago, the Milky Way galaxy formed. In one arm of this indistinct barred spiral galaxy, known as the Orion Arm, about 30,000 light years from its center, our Sun formed. Its mass was sufficient to begin coalescing gas and dust around it, forming planetesimals that collided with each other to form larger bodies, the planets. During this rough-and-tumble early period of the solar system, the third planet from the Sun, the one we call Earth, formed in the habitable zone, a distance from the solar surface ideal for the creation and evolution of life. After a catastrophic collision with another large solar satellite that produced the Earth's moon, the planet's outer surface continued to cool as less and less debris from the outer solar system slammed into it. As it evolved, the sun began to fuse carbon, nitrogen, and other basic elements, a process known as stellar nucleosynthesis, that are ejected from its core and streamed through the solar system, carried by the solar winds. A couple of billion years after its formation, the Milky Way collided and merged with a nearby dwarf galaxy. This caused a massive starburst in which more than 50% of the stars in the galaxy were formed. Many of the most massive of these stars 
died out, collapsing in on themselves and bursting in fiery supernovas. The incredible forces generated from these events produced supernova nucleosynthesis, as copious amounts of oxygen, iron, and other metallic and mineral elements washed over thousands of light years of intergalactic space. Slowly, over eons, the Earth and its surrounding region reached a kind of halting stasis, prolonged periods with fewer cataclysmic events. The Earth's hot iron core created a protective magnetic halo to shield it from much of the sun's destructive radiation. Its mantle turned downward to the outer core, melting it and creating plumes of hot material that rose to the surface, creating newly formed land masses. These separated over time and reformed. Oxygen was released into the Earth's atmosphere, opening it up and exposing its surface to increasing amounts of sunlight. Through a series of mass extinctions and periods of glaciation, oceans formed. Soon, cosmically speaking, bacteria formed, feeding off the pyroclastic vents at the bottom of these oceans. These bacteria expelled oxygen into the Earth's carbon dioxide-filled atmosphere, setting the stage for a eukaryotic explosion of complex life that began some 1.7 billion years before the airing of this podcast. Science can't explain the origins of this earthly biobang either, but it nevertheless set off the evolutionary cycle of life on Earth. Throughout this long period of Earth's development, as a supreme life-giving source, occasional but catastrophic events, supervolcanoes and asteroid strikes occurred, robbing it of much of its rich abundance. One such cataclysm happened about 66 million years ago, when an asteroid many trillions of tons in mass slammed into what is today the Yucatan Peninsula. The impact turned day into night as an enormous fireball of irradiated material engulfed the planet, raining down glassy ash that choked out the dinosaurs and over 70% of the life on Earth in a matter of hours. This mass extinction set the stage for future mammalian dominance and, not long after, our most distant ancestors began to crawl down from the treetops and slowly upright themselves, taking over as the Earth's dominant animal species. From this group, Homo sapiens evolved with the unique ability of self-expression that allowed for the evolution of the human brain, which, among other things, led to the creation of scientific methods of deducing answers to complex problems, like that of the nature, orientation, and evolution of the universe. The unlikely advent of the reign of humankind on planet Earth began 13,799,000 years, 11 months, 30 days, 23 hours, and 58 seconds from the beginning. Give or take a few million years. Or to put it another way, if the age of the universe were scaled to a calendar year, the advent of humanity has taken place in just the last two seconds of the year. So how do we know all this? Well, that was the question I was asking when I started into this nearly two decades ago. After all this time, the one thing I can tell you with great certainty is we don't know everything. But most of the stuff we do know, we know with a great deal of certainty. So what do we know we know, and how do we know it? 
I found it easier to understand how we got to the science and the math by going back and retracing the history of the development of science and sort of piecing together the whole puzzle from the earliest known examples of human innovative thought. That, my friends, is what we're into here on this show. Starting with Episode 2, Ancient Stories of Creation. I hope to make each episode fun, entertaining, and informative. If you have questions or comments about or for current or future episodes, please leave them in the comments section or email them to me at contact at ronbollard.com. Bang Goes the Universe is written, produced, and hosted by me, Ron Bollard. Thanks to my nephew, Mark Bollard, for providing the theme music. If you like the show, well, like it. Or subscribe if you want to be updated when new episodes drop. If you're really feeling generous, buy me a coffee using the link in the episode description. My latest book, Hubble Hummison and the Big Bang, is out on Springer Publishing and available at your favorite online bookstore. For signed copies, go to the contact page at ronvaller.com and request a copy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye-bye.